0: Okay, Let's go ahead and get our Bibles out to the Gospel of John, chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to use the Black Pew Bible in front of you. You're also welcome to take it home and read it. If you're new to the Bible, the chapter numbers are the big, bold numbers. So when we say John chapter 13, big number 13, and then the verse numbers are the little numbers. So, we took a break from John's gospel to spend some time in Genesis 1, but now we're back in John 13, where we find Jesus with less than a week to live. Verse 1 of chapter 13 tells us that Jesus knows that his time is short. Here's how John writes it. Jesus knew that his hour had come. I wonder what you would do if you knew that you would soon be dying. If you knew that your hour had come, that your time on earth was up, I wonder how would you live? How would you spend your last hours? Would you gorge yourself on all the food that you love but you haven't really been able to eat because you've been kind of trying to, you know, maintain your figure? Or would you be in such distress that you were just unable to eat at all? Would you perhaps indulge in some of the vices that you were tempted by on this earth, but you resisted? Would you finally tell that person exactly what you think of them? For better, I love you, and I've always loved you, Trent. Or for worse, I hate you, so on and so forth. Would you spend time with those you love most, or would you make your last few hours on this earth all about yourself? I wonder what your impending death and your realization of your impending death, I wonder what that would reveal of your heart and character. What might it reveal even about your walk with God and your profession of faith in His Son? For instance... If you found out on Tuesday that you had seven days to live, would you come to church on Sunday? Would you spend some of your last few precious hours on this earth with God and His people in His Word, singing His praises, praying to Him, talking to Him, communing with Him? Would you spend some of your last few hours on this earth serving others? In the body of Christ. In chapter 13 we find Jesus rushing headlong into his own death. Running towards the cross. He knows that his time is short. He knows that his days are few. So what does he do? How does he live? Well from what we see in this morning's text. He seems to narrow in his focus on that which matters Most. You see, friends, all throughout John's gospel, the emphasis has been on Jesus' public ministry, his ministry to the crowds and their fickle belief, his controversies with the religious leaders and their opposition to him, his mission to his own, the Jews, the, the people of Israel, and the way that they have utterly rejected him. But now, as the sands of time empty out from the hourglass of his life, Jesus narrows his focus, and he spends his remaining time on earth preparing his disciples for what will come next. I've got five points for you this morning. I'll give them to you one at a time as we go. First, let me pray, and then we will jump in. Lord God, every person in this room desperately needs to hear from your voice this morning. There is so much going on in our hearts and in our lives that can create static, that can keep us from hearing the word of grace that you have for us. So we pray that your spirit would work powerfully in our midst, that that your spirit would help me to speak clearly and boldly and in humility. And we pray that your people would listen carefully as if their souls depended on it because, God, our souls depend on it. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Point number one, the love of Christ sustains us. All of our five points this morning are flowing out of really something we see in verse one. Look there. It says, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them. To the end, When the text tells us that Jesus loved his own to the end, it's saying a lot. And we understand that the kind of apex of Jesus' loving them to the end, the, the, the kind of final destination of that is him going to the cross, right? He went to the cross for them. He paid the price for their sins. He reconciled them to God. He united them to himself. We're going to see that in John 17. He prays to the Father, I pray that they would be one with me in the same way that I'm one with you. Yes and amen. All that's true. But before we get to the cross, we see that at least part of the way that Jesus loved his disciples to the end was in preparing them for the end. And so the text says that he loved them to the end. And so what we're going to see is that from chapter 13 all the way to chapter 21, everything that Jesus does as he narrows his focus in on the disciples is loving them in preparing them for. For that which is to come. And the first big event of his loving them and preparing them is this foot washing ceremony. We're going to talk more about that in a minute. But in this point, I I want us to focus on this this idea that Jesus loved them until the end. Consider Jesus' focused determination to love his disciples. Take confidence brothers and sisters, in the fact that Jesus is not a fickle lover. He is not like so many earthly men who are infatuated with a woman today and bored by her tomorrow. The love that Christ Jesus has for us, the church, his bride, is a love that is rooted in his eternal purposes. It is a love that is sustained. It is a love that cannot be broken. It is a love that he cannot be distracted from. No other woman is going to come along and catch his eye. Now, you'll notice that I keep using the same language here. He loves his own until the end. Well, why do I keep saying that? Just because that's what the verse says. It says that he loved his own until the end. Well, it doesn't say he loved everyone in the whole world to the end. No, it says very specifically in relation to the world that he loved his own who were in the world. But he does not love the whole world. This is the language of election, of God's special, choosing love. And we've learned earlier in John's Gospel, all over the place in John's Gospel, that Jesus has a very special love for all those who have been given to him by the Father. I don't want to rehash all that this morning. I know some of us are like, man, I'm as reformed as it gets, brother. You can talk about election every Sunday if you want. Okay, I want us to consider specifically what this might mean for the joy of our own souls to reconsider this idea that Jesus loves his own until the end. I want you to stop and consider that Jesus' love for you, his unfailing, undying, unstoppable love for you, is not rooted in anything in you. Well, how could it be? What could there possibly be in you to merit this kind of unflinching, undying love. Nothing. Even in your own marriage, there's really nothing in you that keeps your spouse committed to you for who knows how long. More often than not, what keeps us going through the tough times is a covenantal promise, not the way that the other person is behaving, not the contents of our spouse's hearts, I want us to consider that the gospel tells us that Jesus' love for his own, which will save us from the world, which will protect us in the world, and which will one day make us rulers of the world, is rooted not in us, our imperfect obedience, our imperfect righteousness, our innate goodness, because we don't have any of that to offer. It's rooted in the nature and character and will of God himself. So if you're sitting here this morning wondering, will I make it to the end? Take comfort. Because your making it to the end has very little to do with you and a whole lot to do with Jesus' special covenant love. Point number two. The love of Christ teaches us humility. All the way back in John chapter 1, John told us that Jesus came to his own, and his own did not receive him. That's in John 1.11. And we've seen this played out time and time again in John's gospel. Jesus goes to his own. He goes to Israel, the Jews, and they reject him. And now, through his finished work of redemption, Jesus is creating a new people, a new covenant community. And it all starts right here with the 12 disciples. No more 12 tribes of Israel, dispensationalists, see me after. It starts with the 12 tribes of Israel, from whom will flow all of the spiritual descendants of Jesus Christ. So from chapter 13 all the way to chapter 21, Jesus is going to zero in on teaching the 12 how to be a new covenant community. And the first lesson for his disciples about what the new kingdom of heaven will look like is a lesson in humility. Look at verses four and five. Speaking of Jesus, it says that he rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a the towel that was wrapped around him. I've got 4 subpoints for you and point number two. Okay, and if this feels a little bit like a sermon within a sermon, it's because it kind of is. But it'll be good, I think. I wrote it. Subpoint number one, I want to give you the cultural background of the foot washing. When, when I think about foot washing, the first thing that I think about is feet, which are gross, you know. Corns and bunions and cracked skin on your heel, all of that. It's just very unpleasant. But when Jesus washes his disciples' feet, what he's doing here in this display of humility, it's something that goes beyond overcoming the mere ick factor in relation to other people's feet, which he probably didn't even feel. What Jesus is doing here is he's displaying the humility of a slave. And you can see that uh, all over the place. You can see that, first of all, in the way that Jesus dresses himself he disrobes, he puts on a towel around his waist. And this is, in the ancient world, the uniform of a slave. But not only did Jesus kind of just put on the mere you know, outward appearance of a slave, he didn't merely decorate himself, put on the uniform, like for Halloween coming up, you know, I'm a delivery man, but you don't actually go out and hand out any parcels. No, he goes beyond that to actually do the work of a slave. D.A. Carson, in his commentary on John, says that not only was foot washing a slave's job, but many Jews in the ancient world thought that it was even beneath the dignity of a Jewish slave. They thought that only Gentile slaves could do this kind of work of foot washing. Consider the significance of what's happening here, friends. Jesus, the the master, the creator, the sustainer of the universe, is taking on not only the uniform, but the actual labor and status of the lowliest servant of all. And washing the feet of his disciples, Jesus, the king of the Jews, is identifying himself with the lowest of low. And in so doing, he's showing them what kingly authority will look like in this new covenant community that he is creating by his blood. Jesus is showing them, he's giving them an enfleshed parable of what it means that the first will be last and the last will be first. He's showing them what it means that he who wishes to be great in the kingdom of God must first become the slave of all. Subpoint so number two the source of Jesus' humility. The source of Jesus' humility. It has, um, in many Christian circles, become trite to say that someone has a servant's heart, right? Oh, she, oh, brother, she's got a servant's heart, you know? He's got a, bless him, he's got a servant's heart. Even just the way I heard myself say that, kind of gives me the heebie-jeebies. It, it really shouldn't be trite to say this about a brother or sister in Christ. It, it's actually one of the greatest compliments that we can pay to another Christian if we're being sincere to say that they have the heart of a servant. Why? Well, because it's so easy to talk a good game when it comes to being a servant. But it is incredibly difficult to actually, in your heart, see yourself as someone who should be serving others. How can we go? This is my question as I'm I'm thinking through this. How can we, how can I go from a begrudging servant, which if we're being honest is how most of us serve most of the time, okay? Okay. How can we go from being a begrudging servant to truly having a servant's heart like Jesus? Well, the answer, I think, is found in verse 3. Look there. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from the supper and then he proceeded to wash the disciples' feet. So here's the... Here's the million dollar question. How could Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, very God of very God, he who shares in the eternal glory of the Godhead since before the foundations of the world, how can Jesus take on the status of a slave? Well, it's simple really. His humble service flows from a place of deep confidence in his own identity. From a deep confidence in his relationship to the Father. Verse three says that Jesus knew three three things, and I think John tells us this before he. It says this in verse three before he tells us what he did in verse four for a reason. It says that he knew that all things had been given to him. It says that he knew that he was from the Father, and that he knew he was going back to the Father. We're going to address all of these more in subsequent sermons, where Jesus himself will will unpack it all. But What I want us to see here is that at the end of the day, true humility, not feigned humility, but true humility can only be born of true confidence. And Jesus' confidence flowed from his confidence in his relationship to the Father, or excuse me, from his relationship to the Father. For those of you who are involved in sports, you've probably seen different kinds of confidence levels in athletes or you know, fake confidence versus real confidence, right? So the first kind of like fake feigned confidence that you see is in in the athlete who is always sort of beating his own chest and kind of pumping himself up before he goes out onto the field or on the mats or wherever sports games are played, right? And he's, he's, he's going out there and he's telling himself and he's telling everyone else around him that he's unstoppable. He can't be beat, but It's fabricated, and you can see it in him that it's really fabricated. Now, there's another kind of confidence that you see in athletes that's, it's pure. It's genuine. It's born of skill acquisition and experience. This is seen in, for example, the wrestler who goes out on the mat knowing, truly believing that he will win. And why does he know that? Well, because he's put in the work. He's... He has the mat hours. He's done the drills. He's competed against the best guys in the world, and he knows exactly who he is and what he has, and so his confidence just oozes out of his bones. This is the kind of confidence that Jesus has in his own identity, except times like infinity. Jesus knows exactly what he is and who he is. He possesses the confidence of a king. And because of this deep and abiding confidence, he has no issue, no fear, no insecurity taking on the status of a slave. His power will never be in doubt. So it doesn't scare him to lay it down for a moment as he washes his disciples' feet. His authority to those who matter will never be in question. His loving relationship with the Father can never be broken. Now consider how this might apply to you. Obviously, you are not Jesus. You are not one with the Father in the same way that Jesus is. You will not receive all things in the same way that Jesus does. You will not go and get to be with the Father in the exact same way that Jesus will be with the Father, but like Jesus, your ability to exercise humble service can only flow out of, place, out of a place of true confidence in your relationship to the Father. You can only go low in service when you understand that you have been united permanently to the one who sits on high. You can only serve in obscurity and joyfully serve in obscurity when you understand that in Christ you have been crowned with eternal glory. You can only serve others as the lowliest of slaves when you realize that in Christ you have been made one with the king. And so I ask you this morning, brothers and sisters, do you know who you are in Jesus? If you don't know, I mean really know, who you are in Christ, you will always, always, Always struggle to serve in true humility. I'm not saying you won't be able to serve. and I'm not saying you won't be able to serve in a way that seems like humility. But you're always going to be white knuckling it. It's always just going to be through the gritting of your teeth, doing things that you'd probably rather not be doing. What I'm talking about is true humility, the kind of humility that allows you to serve without feeling put upon. The kind of humility that allows you to serve without feeling insecure. The kind of humility that allows you to serve without feeling like you need to prove yourself to others and your dignity to others. If you have this kind of humility, born out of true confidence in your relationship with the Father, you will be able to wrap a towel around your waist, bend over, put water into the basin, and become the servant of all. For anyone here in our gathering this morning who happens to occupy a position of authority, I just want you to consider this lesson from Jesus, this object lesson, and what it means for how you should be exercising your authority. So let's just, let's just do one example. Let's take husbands. Husbands, I, I want you to consider this example of Jesus. Christ does not lord his authority over his bride. He does not lord his authority over his 12 disciples. He doesn't have to. He serves them sacrificially. Husbands, I want you to understand that sacrificial love is how Jesus earns the respect and submission of his bride. And this is how you will earn the loving respect and submission of your wife and children. If you're here and this morning you're just feeling put upon, like your wife isn't really loving you and serving you, and your children aren't loving you and serving you the way that you're supposed to, I want you to consider the fact that it could be because you are lording your authority over them instead of serving them in sacrificial humility. Subpoint number three the power of humility. Have you ever been betrayed by someone who claimed to love you, who claimed to be on the same team? It really stings, you know. It's it's one thing to be betrayed or to be done wrong by an outspoken critic or enemy, but it's another thing entirely to be betrayed by someone that you've given your life to, by someone that you've loved and served. Look at verse 2. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus. And then it goes on to tell us everything that Jesus does there. He serves them and washes their feet. What we see in verse 2 is that Jesus knew that Satan was at work in the heart of Judas to betray him. So I want to ask you this morning, what would you do if you were in this situation? What would you do if you had the power to destroy your Judas before he destroyed you? You see, friends, if Jesus knew this and yet he chose not to use his divine power to exert wrath upon Judas, as a matter of fact, he does the exact opposite. He gets low and serves Judas. He washes Jesus, Judas's feet I just don't know if I could do that. I just want to be honest with you. I mean, I hope that like, by God's grace, if I were put in that situation, that like, everything that I've learned from God's word would be so deeply rooted in my heart that I, I would be able to do it. But I just, I wonder if I have the spirit-wrought power to get low and to serve those who would wish me harm. Let me ask you this. Of the two options available to Jesus, which one do you think more fully displays his divine power? Option number one, killing Judas on the spot. Option number two, serving him in humility. Which one do you think makes Jesus look more powerful? I think what we see in this incredible act of service is an illustration of the truth, friends, that God's power is most clearly seen in humble service, not wrath and vengeance. What I want us to see here, what I I really pray that we understand, is that Jesus' washing of the feet of his enemies, or his enemy, but yeah, in, in another sense, his enemies, is a picture of the gospel itself. You see, friends, if we understand the story rightly, we will understand that we are not Jesus, we are Judas. We are all guilty of betraying the love of God. We are all betrayers, we are all Judases. And if you are sitting here thinking, well, Sean, not me, I'm a Christian, then you just probably have like a painfully low self level of self-awareness about your walk with God and what that looks like. You've, you're probably just utterly blind to the reality of sin in your life. I mean, if you think that you don't betray the love of God every single day, even as a child of God, then you just don't really understand your relationship with the Father. I just want to talk to you more. I want to ask you some questions. I want to get you to consider the law of God and and really ask you, do you really believe that, that you don't betray his love? We are not the humble servants in this story. We are the traitors. It was our sin and betrayal that nailed Jesus to the cross. We deserve exactly what Judas deserved, the wrath of God. But in the gospel, we learned, and we still learn, that Jesus does not give us what we so richly deserve. Rather, he takes on the form of a servant. He sacrifices his own dignity He takes what we deserve on his own head. He dies a slave's undignified death on the cross so that we might be cleansed with the water of his word. Philippians 2 says this, Jesus, who though he was in the very form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Rather, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. To any of my non-Christian friends here today, anyone who may be here who's a, maybe you just say, yeah, I don't really know if I'm a Christian, I'm, I'm kind of seeking, I would like to understand more, this is the part of the sermon where I would like to invite you to pay extra close attention. Because if you don't hear anything else that I say in this morning sermon, I want you to hear this. God would be totally justified in killing you right here right now on the spot and sending you to hell forever. And yet here you are. Here you sit. Living and breathing. And, and by some strange act of providence, you, a non-believer, someone who doesn't believe in Christ, is here in this room hearing a sermon about Jesus Christ, hearing about the gospel. Why is that? Why are you here on a Sunday morning when you could be anywhere else? Is it perhaps because God and his patient kindness has determined to serve you rather than kill you? Is it because in the gospel God has determined to give grace to his enemies if they will receive it? My question for you this morning, if you are not a Christian, is how will you respond to God's mercy and grace? Will you humble yourself as you look at the humility of Jesus? And will you try to match that with your soul's posture? Will you receive his act of service Or will you leave here today, your heart still hard towards the things of God, and die in your sin and treachery like Judas? Subpoint number four Should we wash feet today? Some churches, even entire denominations, believe that foot washing is the third ordinance of the church. So, you know, you have baptism foot washing, uh, (laughs) baptism, the Lord's Supper, and then they would say that foot washing is the third ordinance. And they arrive at this this conclusion uh, for reasons that are kind of understandable. Look at verses 14 and 15. Jesus says, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Well, yeah, that, that makes sense why they might think that this should be something that we continue to do today, but I, I don't think that this is the, the, the right interpretation, and I want to try to show you why, okay? Um, all throughout the Old Testament, we are commanded to greet one another with a holy kiss, yes? H- how many kisses did, did you guys give this morning on the way into the meeting hall? Anybody? Tim, not even for Megan, huh? Okay, all right, yeah. Well, why is that? It's because we understand that kissing is a cross-cultural expression of, excuse me, it's a cultural expression of a deeper underlying cross-cultural principle, namely that when we come together in the body of Christ, we should act towards one another in such a way that obviously communicates our loving unity, right? There's a cultural expression of a deeper underlying universal cross-cultural principle, In the same way, 1 Corinthians commands women in the church to wear head coverings. As I look out and scan the congregation this morning, I'm not seeing any head coverings. Is that because all the women in our church are just walking in disobedience? No, it's because we understand that a head covering was a cultural expression of a deeper underlying cross cultural principle about headship and, and, uh, and submission, which exists in creation and then therefore should obviously be manifested in the church. In the same way, we understand that washing someone's feet was a culturally conditioned expression of a deeper universal principle that we should serve one another in deep humility in the church. Now, what I found to be ironic is that many of the churches who practice foot washing as an ordinance do so and fail to actually express the kind of humility to one another that the foot washing is supposed to communicate, right? And, and, and to be honest with you, it doesn't surprise me. It actually makes a lot of sense because we're all Pharisees at some level, right? We, we all just want to do the ceremonial thing, right? That's the easy thing. Every three months, every six months, we get some basins, fill them with water, get up and yeah, feet are gross, but you know, we, we wash each other's feet for a few minutes. That's actually really easy. But to make yourself a servant of all. To actually have the heart posture of saying, I'm not better than anyone, and I think everyone here is probably better than me, and so I should just serve anyone and everyone as often as I can, as the Lord has gifted me, and to truly pour yourself out and give your life for the service of others, even your enemies, that feels impossible. So, to the members of Sixth Avenue, I, I don't want us to take Jesus' command to wash one another's feet lightly. I, I want us to follow this example. I want us to be a church that is typified by humble service, especially those in positions of authority. And I, I should add that while I was preparing the sermon, I, I just couldn't help but coming back to think about our elders and deacons and the way that they are such strong examples of these things that we're learning about in this text. I mean, I don't know if you've taken the time to thank your elders and deacons lately, but if you're a little behind on that, today or tomorrow might be a good day to do that because uh, maybe you don't see all the ways that they serve, but I do, and uh, they do exactly what Jesus teaches us to do here. They are true examples of pouring your life out in service to others, often uh, even to their enemies, or at least those who act like their enemies. Point number three. The love of Christ cleanses us. Also, for those of you who are like, oh no, only point three. Point number two was the longest. Don't worry, we're moving out a clip, okay? Even though I know you'd be here all day with me, and you'd never even flinch. Point number three, the love of Christ cleanses us. So uh, on the one hand, we know that this foot washing is, is meant by Jesus to be an example to his followers. We already saw that in verse 15. And yet we have to understand that there is on some level something else going on here. There's something deeper. This foot washing is, according to Jesus, a symbol of his cleansing of our sins. You can see that if you just read back through verses 6 through 11. Let's just go back and read those together. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now. But afterwards you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him And that was why he said, not all of you are clean. So much could be said here, but I just want to show you a couple of things. Uh, First, in verse 8. In verse 8, Jesus tells Peter, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. And that that language of, of part with me, that's the language of inheritance. He's saying, you won't get to and we're going to see this in next week, you're not going to get to go with me to be in my Father's house, the mansion with many rooms, filled with the eternal glory of God forever and ever. You, you You don't get that. And so what I really want us to see here, friends, is that this is not just true of Peter. This is true of every person who has ever lived and who ever will live. Unless Jesus washes us, unless Jesus makes us clean from our sins, we will have no part with him in his coming kingdom. This new community that Jesus is creating is not like the old covenant community with a mixture of believers and unbelievers. This new community, this new covenant, is filled with only those who have been made clean by Christ. And the qualifications for entry into this community, well, it's merely a willingness to be made clean by Jesus. Now, this requires two things of us. The first is that it requires us to understand that we need to be made clean. And then two, it requires us to understand that we cannot clean ourselves. Now, the first part there, the part that we need to be clean, you know that instinctively, right? Even when, I, when I, you know, I'm out evangelizing or I'm in the jail or, or whatever, I, I rarely find someone who, who thinks that like, their life is sin-free. Right? Most people, even when they try to suppress the truth and unrighteousness, they know when they lay their head down on the pillow at night that they are sinners, that there is something wrong, that they are unclean. It's true of all of us. But this second part, the second part is the one that's really hard to wrap our minds around. This idea that we can't clean ourselves, that Jesus has to be the, ones from, the one from first to last to make us clean. And I think the reason why this is so hard for us is because we've really learned the photo negative of the gospel. We've, We've kind of gotten the heart of the gospel backwards or upside down or inside out, right? We've come to think that in order to be made right with God, we have to somehow clean ourselves. Like, we've come to think that church attendance is our soap, and prayer and Bible reading and giving and serving the poor is the rag. And we just, with our own good works, have to scrub our souls clean. Friend, I hope you understand that you can never, ever make yourself clean. You cannot clean your white linen while you still have blood on your hands. You cannot scrub the stain out of your own soul. It doesn't work like that. Try as you might your hands are soiled with your own sin. The more you scrub your own soul with good works, the deeper and darker the stains get in your soul. The gospel message is not, God will accept me if I can clean myself. You cannot clean yourself. The gospel message is that God in Christ has done everything he needs to do in order to make you clean. And if you receive it by grace you will be clean. Maybe you're here this morning and you've been visiting for a while and you've been thinking about getting baptized. We're doing baptisms next weekend. That's going to be a, a great time together. We're going to celebrate three, three members or potential members walking in obedience to the Lord and publicly declaring their faith in Him through baptism. But I know it's not uncommon in the South for people to get excited about baptism. You know, It's this, it's this big to-do. It's a big affair and You have the FOMO, right? The fear of missing out. You know, I want to go and be a part of that. I I want to do whatever that is. Friends, I hope you understand that a baptism cannot cleanse you. Baptism was designed by God to be this astonishingly accurate outward symbol of something that God has already done in your heart. The work that he's already done by his spirit to cleanse you. But the ritual itself... Cannot make you clean, even if it's performed by Jesus himself. You see, in this text, what we learn is that all 12 of the disciples got their feet washed by Jesus, and yet we know for a fact that one of them, Judas, did not belong to Jesus. He received the outward symbol, and yet it had no bearing on the filthiness of his soul. Friends, that's true of you. And maybe you've been professing to be a Christian and and, you know, you've been going to church and, and you were baptized when you were really young because all the kids in the church were going up for the fire truck baptism. But then later you realize, oh, I actually wasn't a Christian. And then I got saved in college, but I never got rebaptized. Well, no, friend, it's not that you never got re-baptized. It's that you never got baptized. You, you, partook, you partook of a ritual that symbolized something that wasn't true of you. So, if if I'm saying this and you're like, actually, that is kind of my story, I'd encourage you to come talk to me or one of the elders after the service and talk about actually getting you baptized in the first place. Point number four the love of Christ gives us understanding. In verse seven, Jesus tells Peter that though he does not understand the significance of the foot washing, he will. And it says, you will afterwards. Well, After what? Well, in one sense, the disciples will understand what Jesus' foot washing means after he explains it to them. That's what you see in verse 12. Look there. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? And like if if, uh, patterns hold true, the disciples are probably sitting there staring at him with a blank expression of, You know, mouths agape, just, no, we don't understand anything. Don't you know that by now? And then he goes on to explain it to them. Okay, that's good. But there's another sense, a deeper sense, in which the disciples, they won't really understand the significance of this event until after all of Jesus' earthly work is finished. His death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, the Spirit falling on them at Pentecost, And even then, they still won't fully understand the significance. You think about Peter. After Pentecost, he still didn't really, truly, fully understand what Jesus meant about how to be a servant to others. We see that when Paul has to confront him over the fact that he was very much acting like a non-servant. So here's what I want us to see in this point. Learning really deep, important, abiding truths from the Lord is very often a process. There is rarely a lightning bolt moment of illumination and epiphany when it comes to learning the deep things of God, especially for the sake of sanctification. I'm not saying it doesn't happen. You can come up to me afterwards and tell me your own lightning bolt story and I'll be encouraged to hear it. But I would want you to know that that's the exception that really proves the rule. More often than not, what God does is he has to knead his truth into our souls. You know, like the, the turkey on Thanksgiving, you know, you got you to gotta work all the goodness in there, you know. That's what he has to do with our souls. He has to work his truth into our bones like a marinade. There has to be a first pass and then a second pass and then a third pass. And then for me, like a fourth and a fifth and a sixth pass. So consider this both from the perspective of a teacher and a learner. Okay, so let's consider this from the perspective of a teacher. And by the way, don't tune me out if you're like, I'm not a pastor. No, no, no. Every person who's a Christian is a teacher. Every person. We speak the truth to one another in love and so build up the body of Christ. That is your ministry if you don't ever serve in any other ministry. You make disciples of the nations. Starts in the local church then it goes out from there, right? But we are all teachers. Mom, you teach your kids. Husbands, you teach wife and children. We all teach one another, so on and so forth. Okay. Sometimes, oftentimes, we can become exceedingly frustrated with the progress we seem to be making in teaching others, right? You think about Your relationships, maybe you're in a discipleship relationship and and you've said the same thing like four times and you've tried to say it in like four different ways and you've prayed and you've sought additional help and you've read the book and you listen to the podcast and you come back and you teach it again and it still doesn't seem like it's getting through. You're discouraged, you're frustrated. Well, that's just kind of normal, right? And you should understand that because It's really normal for you. Right? That's what when as a learner, isn't that how it's been so often in your life? Somebody's had to come back and tell you over and over and over and over and over again. But we should really be encouraged by Jesus' example here. He knows that his disciples won't understand the lesson as he's giving it to them, and he knows that they won't even fully understand it even after as he teaches and explains it to them. He knows that they won't even really understand it. After the Spirit falls on them and they have the Spirit's power to be able to comprehend these things, Jesus understands that learning the deep things of God is a process. And the sooner you understand that, the less easily you will be discouraged in your teaching relationships. Now, let's consider this from the perspective of a learner. As a learner, we rarely learn the lessons that God has for us on the first go-around. We've established that. but Let me take a moment to embarrass myself. Uh, I recently reread with a couple brothers in the church, in the church uh, a book on taming the tongue, and it was absolutely crushing for me. I'll tell you why. Because I already knew everything in it. I mean, seriously, I'd probably learned everything in that book like 10 times already in my Christian walk, and there were some helpful illustrations, and he said some things that were unique, and blah, blah, blah. And yet, it was still, convi- like half of the book convicted me of my sinfulness with my tongue, Right? I was just, I'm like, oh, I have to learn this all over again. And I'm a pastor, you know? This is a Christian life. And man, it can be so frustrating sometimes. You're teaching somebody something, you try, 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 it doesn't work. Then someone comes along and says the exact same thing you do, and they go, oh, thanks, that's really helpful. Everything makes sense now. <laughs> what? Uh, kids in the church, children, all the children, look unto me, your pastor. Are you looking at me? I see you. Uh-huh. Everybody looking? Okay. You may not understand, Levi. You may not understand everything that your mom and dad are trying to teach you right now. You may not understand why you gotta do these chores or why you're getting these spankings or why they make you do this or do that. They're sitting you down and they're giving you these talks and they're pointing to the Bible and it's just like you may not understand it all right now but one day you will. Maybe you won't understand it all, but you'll understand a lot of it. And I know you probably get tired of hearing this from your parents. They tell you, oh, I know it doesn't make sense now, but when you get older, you'll thank me, you'll appreciate it, you'll understand then, and you're just like, yeah, right, mom, yeah, right, dad, no way. No, they're telling you the truth. One day you will understand and you will appreciate the things that they are teaching you. So, kids, trust your parents. And parents, Trust the process. Point number five. The love of Christ brings us to obedience. Look at verses 16 and 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I think every member of our church, every Christian in this room really, is in danger of a confused disobedience. A confused disobedience. Why am I calling it a confused disobedience? Well, I think it, it's pretty obvious that there's some kind of disobedience that we walk in that's obvious to us even as we are walking in it. We watch something on the internet that we shouldn't have, and we know it, and we're convicted. We said the thing to our wife or our husband in the moment that we shouldn't have. It's obvious to us, but there is a kind of disobedience that we can be walking in that we're just not aware of. You know, you think about the Pharisees, right? Jesus came along, and and the Pharisees thought that they were actually doing everything right. They thought they were walking in complete obedience, and Jesus says, actually, you guys have it all wrong. Yeah, that's confused disobedience. Well, I think for Christians in this room, we have two two specific risk factors for confused disobedience. Number one, we live in an age where it is easier than ever to confuse knowing things with doing things, right? We live in an information economy rather than a skill-based economy, so we think knowing something is the same thing as actually being able to do something. And then You just think about our theological tradition. You know, we're the doctrine people. We we care about theology, and we're reading all the books, and we're expositional preaching and inductive Bible studies, and we could just go on down the line, right? And the danger there is that we can confuse knowing things about God with actually having a relationship with God, and actually walking in obedience towards God. And you know exactly the kind of thing that I'm talking about, right? You think about the young theologian who has, you know, read many leather-bound theology books, you know. Uh, the, the kid who thinks that at age 25, he's been walking with the Lord for four years, that he's holier than Miss Ruth over here, who's been walking with the Lord for 80 years because he knows more about systematic theology than she does. That's the kind of danger that we have in our context. So, listen to this, church family. Understanding the lesson of this morning's sermon and obeying this lesson are not the same thing. One does not necessarily flow from the other, but I hope it will. I hope it will. I actually prayed in my my sermon prep this week that this text would not merely sort of rattle around in our brains, but that it would root itself deep, deep, deep down in our hearts. Why? Why? Because verse 17 says that we will be blessed if we actually do these things. Look at verse 17 again so you can see that. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Jesus is talking to his disciples who he's been teaching, but who seem to have a problem with follow through. So he wants to make sure that they understand, hey guys, listen. It's not merely enough that you know this, it's enough that you know this and do it. Now, uh, sometimes when my children disobey me uh, and I tell them about it, they're really quick to apologize and ask for forgiveness. Praise God. We love that, right? But sometimes I'll I'll be at a point with them verging on exasperation where I'll say to them, hey, you know, apology is great, but really what I want from you is like first-time obedience, well, in the same way, like as 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 I made my point earlier, you know, it's not just knowing but doing, and there are a lot of mms, which in our church is like as close as we get to like man's, you know, except for Jonathan. Amens are great. But what God wants from you is not mere enthusiasm when I make this point. He doesn't want mere intellectual assent. What God wants is obedience. You know, I've been told that uh, our, our sermon on manhood and womanhood uh, from a few weeks ago, that it's, that it's producing a baby boom in our church in light of some of the things that we've said there. And for that, I praise God. But I, I really pray that the same kind of thing happens in light of this sermon. I pray that there's a humility boom. I pray that our church just over the next several weeks and months and years we just start seeing an increase in radical, sacrificial, humble, slave-like service. I hope that, we, that, that, that the elders just have wives coming up to tell us that their husbands have become more servant-hearted at home, that they less lord their authority over their wives and children and rather dedicate themselves to serving their wives and children in love. I pray that the church members perceive in the elders of this church a growth in true Christ-like humility. I hope that even the bosses and the business owners in our church who exercise a tremendous authority in the workplace, I pray that they actually become more service-oriented to those under their authority in light of the words of Jesus here. I hope that they understand that when they serve those who are under their authority, that they are picturing Jesus most clearly and they will accomplish the most good. In closing, I just want you to think about why Jesus is modeling the kind of leadership to his disciples that he does in this foot washing scene. Why does he do this? It's because he wants them to succeed. He knows that they are going to be the pillars and foundation of this new covenant community, and he knows that as they lay this foundation, they must lay a strong foundation. If this new covenant community is to endure, if it's to be strong, if it's to be prosperous, if it's to be healthy, it has to begin in humility. The same thing is true of your marriage. The same thing is true of your relationships in the workplace. The same thing is true of this church. If our foundation is going to be strong, we must begin by laying a strong foundation of humility. The text says that we will be blessed if we do these things. And I really believe that. And I really want our church to be blessed. I want us to be a church full of happy and healthy members. I want our families and our marriages to be strong and vibrant. I want our witness to the community to image the example of our Lord Jesus Christ as he washed his disciples' feet. So in closing, I want to exhort you to to spend some time meditating on this sermon like beyond the parking lot. And I I want you to actively sit down and think through ways that you can be more servant-hearted. Like, like seriously, like grab a pen, grab a piece of paper, sit down and ask yourself, how can I better serve others? How can I better serve my wife? How can I better serve my husband? How can I better serve my church member? Write a prayer of confession to the Lord. Ask yourself and be honest with yourself, how am I kind of only maybe in relationships with people for what I can get from them rather than what I can give to them. How do I interact with the church in that way? Guys, I just gotta tell you, one of the things that kills me as a pastor is when someone comes and and issues a complaint to me and they say something to the effect of like, well, I just don't get a lot out of that. And I'm just like, yeah, but what can you give? Maybe even invite those who know you best into an honest conversation and ask them, how you can be a better servant leader. I pray that the Lord bears much fruit and my heart is full of hope that he will. Let's pray. Father God, the only way that any of this stuff that we've learned this morning will actually impact our lives is if your Holy Spirit applies it to our hearts. And we trust that he will. Because the gospel promise is that your Holy Spirit is shaping us into the image of, of your Son so that we can go and be with our Heavenly Father for all of eternity. We pray these things in his name. Amen.